Welcome to Building Fortunes Radio. Make sure you check us out at buildingfortunesradio.com. Along with our marketing partners, we're here to help our PM Marketing Network Lead customers build their businesses and make the world a better place. At Building Fortunes, we know how much your business means to you and the people important to you. So spread the word, tell a friend, join our newsletter, and go make a difference in your world. Now on to our show with your host, Peter Mingles. Hello, everyone. Peter Mingles here. You're listening to us on Building Fortunes Radio. It's www.buildingfortunesradio.com. It's a Saturday night. It's 8.30 p.m. on the eastern side. It's 7.30 p.m. on the central side. And we are here every Saturday with Scott Johnson's radio show. Scott and I met many years ago, when it was much warmer, by the way. It was August. Um, It was on Labor Day. He called me the day after... I did a radio show with a gentleman named uh, Roger Van Vlissingen. Roger is spelled R-O-G-I-E-R, and you can figure out how to spell Van Vlissingen. But Roger was a smart dude, still is, um, lives in Brooklyn, for those people that are familiar with like smart guys that live in Brooklyn. And he was writing about MLM in an anti-way, meaning this Roger Van Vlissingen guy. And I did a radio show with him and E. Robert Smith. A couple of them, but after the first radio show, Scott Johnson called me up and he said, hey, listen, I listened to that radio show and there's something a lot of people are missing. And I said, what's that, Scott? And he said, the tools scam associated with MLM. Now, I had never spoken to Scott before. We were having a nice conversation. I didn't know how much he knew about MLM or what his background was, and he mentioned the tool scam. So I was trying to figure out, as he was talking to me, what he meant by the tool scam. And I had a frame of reference for those people that have listened in before when I was looking to transition out of Electrolux, which is my direct sales management career. Um, I was looking at where did I make the most money in Electrolux? And that was when we had an MLM compensation plan. Now, that's not 100% true. I made a lot of money when we were in, when they would had their MLM plan. It wasn't the most that I made, but it was a lot. And I said, you know, um, MLM is something. So I joined Amway uh, once, and I don't remember all the details, but I do remember I quit, mostly because I just couldn't see how it was going to work. The compensation plan wasn't very aggressive. The prices were overpriced by comparison. And although I could probably rationalize that maybe that some of them were better quality or some of them were more concentrated and some of them might be better. I could rationalize why you'd buy a premium product over a less premium product because people do that stuff all the time, you know, depending on how you do your grocery shopping. You might buy a name brand or you might buy a non-name brand. So anyway, I quit once. Then I met somebody else and I went up joining under them because I figured, let me give it a good shot. At least maybe the people that I was working with weren't um, – the type of people that just knew, or maybe they didn't give it a good enough chance for whatever reason. So joined a second time, found out it was the same story. Looked like a lot of people were making money somewhere, obviously, from stage, but um, I don't know where their money's coming from on the compensation plan. There must be a lot of little people out there. They must have hundreds or thousands of people in their downline. And uh, unless they're making all this money on these books and these tapes and these functions that they call the system. So anyway, I quit the second time. Then I bought a shirt at a mall because I was in sales management, used to buy lots of white shirts, bought a white shirt and a whole bunch of other stuff at a mall. And like anybody who's good at whatever, when you run across somebody that's sharp, you ask them, you know, you're looking for something. And we kind of exchanged cards and he gave 
my card to a guy named Jim, uh, who was Diamond, and he, uh, Jim called me up, told me whatever, and I said, Jim, this sounds like Amway, and he tried not to say it sounded like Amway because he wanted to meet with me first. I said, Jim, this is what I do for a living. Like I'm kind of familiar with this stuff. So it sounds like Amway. If it's Amway, I'm not interested. No, 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 no. You know, you got to talk to me. I said, okay, I'll talk to you. When I talked to him, I told him about my tools business, and he said, no, 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 it's not like that at all. I said, Jim, I said, if I join with you and you're going to show me the ropes, which I appreciate because he really looked like he was going to take an interest in me, I said, if I join with you and I take – an interest in this and I do the things that you're telling me and I get a chance to be able to make the type of income. I'm not looking for anything for free. I, I know how to recruit people. I know how to sell. So just provide the platform. If I could do that and have, you know, the lifestyle that some of these other people do, that would really make a big difference. But if I find out, it's just like all the other ones were showing me. I'm out of here. I'll tell you, the minute I find out, I'm done. No, 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 no. Well, he must have forgot that conversation because towards the end when I was leaving and he had to pull the curtain you know, with the wizard, like the Wizard of Oz, pull the curtain back. And then I saw it was the tools scam. Um, I knew that what I was thinking Scott was describing was probably what Scott was describing. And that was confirmed when I asked him, uh, do you have a website? And he said, I sure do. It's called stoptheamwaytoolscam.wordpress.com. So there's my little rendition on how we kind of got started. And I said, Scott, we can do some radio shows on this because there's a lot of people don't know about the tools scam, the way you refer to it. And I like that kind of a, a niche, the way you kind of put it that way. But yeah, I don't know how many radio shows we're going to be able to do on tools only because that'll get kind of boring over time. So we started to do some radio shows. And what I did not realize, and to our benefit, is there was a lot of stuff going on at that time. Herbalife was being attacked by Bill Ackman. Vima was being shut down temporarily by the FTC, and there was a whole bunch of other things that was happening as well. So uh, we decided to do this radio show, and this is one of our longest-running radio shows. Like I said, we do it every Saturday at uh, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central Time, and sometimes during the summer we might cut a little bit longer or shorter, depending on whatever's going on with daylight hours. But we are here tonight, and I want to say thanks, Scott Johnson, for being here on a cool and cozy uh, Winter's Day over here in Florida. It's 43 degrees, which is kind of, nope, yeah, 43 degrees is going to go down to about 38 or 33 on the Fahrenheit side, which makes me kind of negative because I have to put on socks, and I'm not a socks guy. I wore enough socks and gloves and everything else when I was in the northern hemisphere, like the northern, northern Chicago, Midwest, and New York, and down here in Florida. I'm okay with um, not having to worry about socks. So I still don't wear socks most of the time, even when it's cold. But if I have to go out, it makes sense, because otherwise people look at you kind of strange. So, Scott Johnson, thanks for being here on your own radio show. Hey, Peter, thanks for having me. Now we know why you went to Florida, so you don't have to wear socks. That's that's it. I didn't realize how much I was not into socks. That's great. Once you get I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, you you know you're right. Um, there was a lot going on when we first started because uh, the FTC was going after both Vima and Herbalife at that time, and actually it was really because of Bill Ackman that I had a more diverse, you know, multi MLM understanding because before then I was really focused on Amway and and my experience in Amway for a dozen years. And, and there was a lot going on with Amway. They, you know, I found out about the tool scam in 2005, and then I went back to not not to return to my upline, but to start 
using their functions in 2007. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to start using their functions again, I better see one or two of them. Um, and then in 2000, well, it was 2007 again, um, where my upline and, and a bunch of others got kicked out of Amway um, when they actually went from calling it Quickstar, which it was since 1999, and they announced going back to Amway, and that just riled everybody up. And one of the big key differences when they went back to Amway was they didn't give the upline any heads up. When they announced it, it was announced to everybody at the same time. And the upline was quite upset um, that this happened at all, and particularly in that manner that they had no idea what was going on. So um, I was trying to develop my own Amway business without the tool scam, and the, the Amway Corporation kept getting in the way over and over and over again. They would they would drag their feet. I was trying to get a uh, presentation approved by them, which is required by rule. Um, and they just delayed and delayed and delayed and were, were very uncooperative. I kept asking for somebody in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I lived at the time to see if I could plug into, even if it wasn't my direct upline, if it was, you know, cross line. And they just didn't help. It was amazing how little... Uh, cooperation I got out of the corporation. Um, it was almost like they didn't want me to succeed. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what their motivations were, but by 2009, I was just so frustrated. I decided, well, I'm not getting anywhere. I may as well act up and get kicked out because I don't like to quit things. And so I, I gave them the opportunity to terminate me, which they obliged. And so that was the end of my, you know, quote unquote, Amway career. Um, Although ever since 2005, when I did find out about the tool scam, I've been very active online and in other ways trying to get a change made. Um, I'm trying to educate people. I'm trying to get the attention of government agencies and politicians and anyone basically in authority that would listen. Um, and I'm going to be retiring here in a, about a week and a half. So I'm going to have a whole lot more time during the week, during the day, to do these kinds of things because when you have a job, you're basically busy while all those other people are available. And then once you get done working, they're not available. So it, it's been one of those things where you can only make so much progress when you don't have those times during the day lining up. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be an you know, interesting endeavor for sure. Um, and we'll just see how it goes. Um, but like you mentioned, um, the tool scam, particularly the Amway tool scam, uh, is like you said, back in our day, it was books, tapes, and functions. It's still books and functions, uh, but the tapes have been replaced by generally electronic downloads, right, MP3, MP4 type um, audio and video downloads, um, mainly on your telephone or computer, um, but uh, they also have phone apps where they charge, they have website access, they have uh, voicemail, there's all kinds of different ways that the upline makes money on these tools. And what makes it a scam isn't that they're making money. The scam is that they don't talk about it. They, they give the impression, if you didn't know any better, that they make all their money from Amway. And of course, you with your business experience could recognize that when you were in. Um, I didn't until 
you know, my upline Diamond got kicked out back in 2005, and that's when I found out about he was making at least twice as much from the tools versus Amway. And I thought, well, wow, this is really interesting. You know, no one ever mentioned this before in the dozen years I had been involved. <clears throat> and so that really that really ticked me off. And and so ever since 2005, yes, I've been trying to get people to work together, which is probably my biggest frustration, um, just trying to get people to understand we have a lot more power, influence, whatever you want to call it, if we work together. Um, because the other side does work together, right? All the MLMs have a lobby uh, organization called the DSA, Direct Selling Association, um, and that Direct Selling Association has influence at the federal and state level particularly, you know, getting laws passed, uh, paying off politicians, all these kinds of things. Um, and, and so to me, the only way to go against that is is to go against that. You know, with with a another organization that can push back and tell the other side of the story, because all they're getting right now is is the garbage. You know, it's the one-sided, uh, very biased information, and they're not seeing the rest of what's going on. So, um, and like I've mentioned before, it's really important for the politicians to hear voices. You know, not just one voice, but multiple voices because their number one objective is to get reelected. That, that's what drives politicians. So enough of their, if enough of their constituents were upset, I think they would pay attention because, again, they want to get reelected. And so it, it's been a frustration of mine that other people don't really understand that. Um, present company excluded, of course. We've been doing this show now for over eight years uh, weekly, We've only missed a handful of shows for, you know, very good reasons. Uh, I think once we had a technical difficulty, a couple times it was a holiday. Uh, we each had a uh, uh, son or daughter getting married, um, those kinds of things. So other than that, you know, we've been here. And, and I appreciate your, you know, loyalty to this show and putting out things that are probably what most uh, pro MLM people would call negative. Uh, I just call it the facts and truth. So, um, and, and they, a lot of them don't want to hear the truth and the facts. Um, and, and I know that's one of the reasons that you started this platform was because you were the head of some very influential uh, industry organizations, pro MLM organizations, um, but they didn't want to go after anything that looked like it was bad news. Um, whereas you, and I'm thankful for this, are willing to look at both sides of the argument, as am I. Um, I'm not anti-MLM, like you see on YouTube, all these anti-MLMers that are just going off crazy talk. Um, I, I actually think MLM is one of the more brilliant business models ever invented. It's just that it's not being executed properly, and... I'm pro-MLM when it's done right and anti-MLM when it's done wrong, and I'm very willing to define what I mean by right and wrong. Um, right means you have retail sales, which prevents the MLM from being an illegal pyramid, and also you have uh, visibility to the amount of profit being made by the tools. Otherwise, you have RICO fraud, or at least business fraud, if you're not showing 
your your prospective business partners and teammates, as my upline wanted us to refer to them as, um, if you're not showing them the whole story, then you're committing business fraud. You know, if, if you're hiding where most of the profit comes from, and some of these guys make 10 times or more from the tools versus from their Amway business, from the Amway products. And so, you know, that's it's not like it's a minor detail. It's actually the major source of income. And to me, why the FTC hasn't gone after these guys uh, is mind-boggling. I, I just don't understand why they don't understand, I guess, is the best way to put it. Because to me, it's so obvious. Now, I have to consider I've been thinking about this a lot for a long time, and therefore I have a good understanding. And maybe, you know, the FTC people um, are not as familiar, and they certainly have a lot of responsibilities outside of MLMs. There's no doubt about that. But you would think by just the sheer number of years and cases that have, have progressed that they would start catching on and they would have all this information from the previous prosecutions they've done and be able to sort of move the ball down the field. Um, but like we saw in the New York case, uh, they just totally fumbled it. It was, it was just an amazing decision that was, that was, that came out, I guess it was, uh, what, two Septembers ago or, or, or some, somewhere in that time frame. It's been over a year now that it's been out, I think, uh, or was it just last fall? Do, do you remember? Which one? The, the New York, was that just last fall that that decision yeah, came was out? Just, yeah, just a couple of months ago. Yeah, just a few months ago. Just a few months ago. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. It was, uh, the decision was September 28, 2023. So I, I thought it was longer ago, maybe because we've done so many shows on and I've been thinking about it so much. And it started, <laughs> it started just about before COVID. So that's why. Yeah, it, it's been going on for a while and actually – it took about a year from the trial until the decision came out. I mean, that was an extraordinarily long time to come to a decision. It was a bench trial, so there's no jury. I mean, if it was a jury, they would have had to decide um, in much less than a year. <laughs> but they uh, they had a bench trial, which means there was no jury. It was just the judge that was making the decision. And so, and she took, like I say, almost a year, I think it was, to come to her decision, and it was amazing how how much time passed before she came out and and basically threw the FTC under the bus because they had five different things that they went after, and they were 0 for 5. Uh, they got nothing. Uh, she was very, I would say, frustrated and disappointed with the information that the FTC brought to her. And I got the impression just from reading the decision that she would have liked to have done something against Neora because Neora did not have a compelling story, but they had the only story that was presented. And, you know, by law, by the decision-making process that judges are supposed to use, I think she did the right thing. She said, look, the only evidence I have before me was presented by Neora and so I have to find in their favor. There's just really no choice uh, because any civil lawsuit, you know, it's a 50.001%, right? It's just if you have a bare majority of, of evidence, um, then your the decision is in your favor. 
Whereas in a criminal case, you know, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. If you can come up with a reasonable doubt for somebody in a criminal case, then they're supposed to be found not guilty. Uh, so that's sort of a different scale, if you will, a different measurement between a, a civil case and a criminal case. So anyway, I'll stop there and uh, let you make any comments, and then we can get back into I'd like to continue the Nior story, but let me let you make some comments, and then we can do that. Sure. Nope. We're good to go. All right. So, you know, last week we talked about Neora, and right towards the end of the show, uh, I got into one of my comments, and I, I couldn't remember because it had been a while since I had written it, what the context was. So I went back and looked um, at the decision again on the page previous. It's really interesting how this case um, did not really uh, depend on the Coscott rule, which is what the FTC normally uses as, you know, their their method, I guess, of going after MLMs. Um, and Coscott was a, an MLM back in the 70s, and the judge kind of came up with a criteria. This is not a law; it's just a, a judge's sort of opinion. Um, but that opinion has been used in many, many other MLM cases over the years. And so this particular case was tried in Texas, which is in the, the Fifth Circuit Court. And the Fifth Circuit Court <laughs> has never used Coscott, you know, as, as a precedent. It's been used in other circuits, I think particularly the Ninth, which is on the West Coast in California and so forth. Um, but Coscott has never been used in the Fifth Circuit Court. Um, and so what the Fifth Circuit Court decided to use was another sort of uh, precedent, which is different than Coscott, and it's called Torres, uh, T-O-R-R-E-S. And what's really interesting about that particular case, the Torres case, is when, when you're trying to prove a RICO case, First of all, it's very difficult because there's a number of hurdles you have to overcome in order to get even the first step. You know, the first step is getting your class approved. And one of the things that has to be proven to get a class approved in a class action lawsuit is that there was a fairly common experience among all the people who are suing whoever they're suing. And and that's a difficult thing usually. Um, but what happened here was was the judges said, you know, if you can prove this is a pyramid scheme, then that goes a long way to showing that the people that are suing the company or, or the other individuals, whoever it is, they had a common experience. And and because it you know, it's because it's a pyramid, an an illegal pyramid. And and so that was really the basis of of the Torres and how they, in that case, were able to get the class approved without really showing individual similar experiences. So I just thought that was an interesting take on how to overcome that RICO barrier because it is a it is a barrier. It's it's tricky to have any RICO case um, approved. It, it, it you have to go through a lot of hoops to make that happen. So it was really just an interesting sort of precedent in the Fifth Circuit Court. Um, and then they they went on and, and explained that there's really no clear 
definition of what an illegal pyramid is, um, which is true if you look at the federal law. There's no definition of an illegal pyramid. Now, I like to use the definition that the FTC settled with Vima and Herbalife back in 2016, which is basically 50%. In other words, if you sell as much as you consume internally, you know, selling to customers who are not part of the compensation plan, then you're a legitimate MLM. If it's less than 50%, then you're an illegal pyramid. Now, most MLMs don't come anywhere close to 50%. So it's not like you have to argue over, you know, 49 or 48. Is that okay? Um, because most of them, I think, are much, much lower. So that's not really the issue. Uh, the issue is the fact that there's no law that really defines what the minimum is. Um, and I hope the FTC decides to go ahead and do something along those lines and, uh, you know, have a minimum. And I'm okay with 50%. You know, it could be higher because it is somewhat arbitrary. But I think starting at the 50% point would be a good start. Um, and it would correct a lot of MLMs that have virtually no retail sales like Amway. Um, and, and it would just be a very, very helpful thing to provide more clarity to the industry. So um, anyway, did you have any comments on that? Nope. All good. The, the only thing that I want to comment, it may not be specific to what you just referenced, but Neora had just, the ruling for Neora had just came after the one for success by health and success by health was a ruling where they lost everything in the whole thing. They were, they were just, it was a bad thing for that MLM company, that MLM company owner and a whole bunch of other things as well. So it looked like the FTC was probably waiting. I, I thought the reason why it took so long is because the judge was going to base this decision for Neora on the basis of success by health getting their ass kicked in court, unjustly, by the way, and we talked about that. That's another story. Um, so all of these things come off after, of course, the Supreme Court's decision where they basically told the FTC, you can't do the things that you do. They're basically freezing people's accounts, freezing assets, basically closing people down uh, unconstitutionally for decades. And um, that happened right around the same time with Neora, right around the same time with Success by Health. So these were really very, very, very important cases. And the idea that Success by Health was just beaten up and Neora came out and they just basically put a wallop on the FTC. The Neora case that you're describing and these decisions are really going to help set a positive precedent, I think, for MLM and really set the FTC back one more time. So back to you, Scott. Yeah, one of the key things was Neora was able to prove that they had a lot of retail sales. You know, they had, depending on when they said it, I think it varied between 60 and 80 percent, you know, well over 50 percent. And and so they did have a good story to tell. And And why the FTC, you know, didn't recognize they had that much, and we've talked about this before, um, that Neora had a, a category 
if you paid full retail price, you were called a retail customer. If you had some kind of a preferred customer uh, situation where, you know, they had a different name, if, if you had a discount available to you, um, then for some reason the FTC did not consider that a retail sale. But the only thing that they had to go on, the FTC, I mean, was the fact that that 1% that the FTC kept saying was their retail sales, it's only because of the label that Miura put on that particular type of a purchase. So it, to me, it's just mind-boggling that the FTC didn't get something that's that. But that it's just so obvious. Um, and, and yet they built their whole case on that. They built their whole case on that. Now, the other interesting thing, and I don't believe what I'm going to say next is the situation. It was almost as if the FTC wanted to use that basic false premise to be able to cripple Neora enough where Neora would eventually, you know, not do well. So it's almost like the FTC has a tendency of standing on your neck until you turn a pretty color blue and then they'll let go and they'll realize that you're almost dead or you're brain dead and you're going to die anyway because of all the damage that they put on you for as many years as they did. And I don't know, I don't think the FTC did, did that in this case, but you could certainly make the point that it was so obvious that they made such a blatant mistake, this could be an obvious strategy. They tried to choke Neora out by lasting longer than Neora could stay alive. And to the great testament of Neora people, they're still alive. They're still pushing. And according, of course, to Ted Knightnover and businessforhome.org, which is a you know, paid-for rag, um, Dior is still doing well. So I don't think Dior is doing well, but according to – they're still alive. So at least they get a chance to fight another day saying they beat the FTC, and very rarely does the FTC lose twice. Once they lose once, they usually go after somebody else. So back to you, Scott. Yeah, and, and you know, the whole, the whole thing, like you mentioned, um, you, you give a company a bad reputation, you know, people can – Google Neora and find out that they're being sued by the FTC. Uh, the distributors become, you know, frustrated and, and lose faith in the company. And, and all of those things can cause an MLM to collapse. Um, and to me, it's just highly irresponsible of the FTC to go after an MLM when they should have known that they had a lot of retail sales um, and, and, they had all their records, and, and Neora even said, hey, FTC, let's talk about all of our, you know, documentation, and the FTC said, nope, we're just going to take you to court. And to me, that's just very irresponsible um, for a government agency to act like that and, and not um, have an honest discussion. Um, and and, and I, I always bring up I just think that the FTC is still butthurt over that nine to zero decision that the Supreme Court made. That, you know, the Supreme Court basically said, "No, you do not have authority under Section 13B to do anything more than an injunction. That's all you can do. Um, you know, you cannot go after their finances. You cannot, uh, you know, appoint a receiver. You cannot do any of those things under 13B. Now, there's a Section 19 where you can sue somebody." Um, but then when you do that, you have to allow the MLM or whoever you're suing to have their say in court um, in the beginning. You can't just go in there 
you know, one-sided and explain to the judge, yeah, we think this is a really bad thing. You need to shut it down. Can't do that anymore. And, and I still think that the FTC is butthurt over that. Um, and, and whether they intentionally or unintentionally, you know, tried to bring attention to the fact that they didn't have 13B anymore by losing the New York case. I, I mean, it seems crazy to think about that, but it, it seems plausible <laughs> that they're just trying to get attention to say, yeah, we we really need this 13B back because we can't win without it. Uh, so it, I don't know. It, it's confusing for sure. Um, but anyway, we'll move on. Um, so anyway, um, I'll just go on in, in my other comments here. Uh, it, it talks about um, part of this, this Neora case. It says, much has been made of the uh, personal or internal consumption issue in recent years. In fact, the amount of internal consumption in any multi-level compensation business does not determine whether or not the FTC will consider the plan a pyramid scheme. This is actually from a, I think, 2004 letter that the FTC put out. And then in, in uh, bold letters in this decision, it says, the critical question for the FTC is whether the revenues that primarily support the commissions paid to all participants are generated from purchases of goods and services that are not simply incidental to the purchase of the right to participate in a money-making venture. Now, that's a confusing sentence to me. I'm not sure what it even means. Um, but I think it, it sort of comes from the Costcott, where that's sort of the wording in the Costcott decision. Um, and, and if the FTC would just change their wordings and say the critical question with the FTC is whether or not there's lots of retail sales or not, then you would have a clear sentence and something that makes sense versus the cost cut, like we mentioned before. Uh, you know, that was a very bad MLM to use to set the standard. Now, I realize it was one of the very first ones, and therefore it did set the standard. But Costco was an anomaly as far as their behavior um, and the facts of that case because for about a year, they didn't even have any products. All you could do is pay your thousands of dollars to join um, in order to pay off the people in your upline uh, just for the joining fee, right? No products. Um, and, and then also to get a bigger discount on the products, which you know were available a year later. Um, and, and that's such an obvious illegal pyramid. You know, that's the same thing as, as the old chain letter and the airplane game and the gifting and all that. It, it, you know, it's it's not what the FTC should be using as their primary basis for going after MLMs. That's what was in that letter, and I know that different sides of the argument try to interpret that last sentence I mentioned um, in that decision in different ways, um, but it really boils down in my mind, do you have retail sales or do you not, period. It doesn't matter whether your um, your culture supports it or you're supportive of retail sales or you encourage retail sales, all these, you know, soft, wishy-washy words. Now, you have to have all those things, right? You have to promote selling and you have to teach selling and, and you need all those things. But the only thing that really matters is whether you have the sales or not. That, that's the only thing that you need to measure, um, not all this other fluffy stuff. 
Um, but that's kind of what the FTC is determined to do. They, they say this is very complicated, and they make it complicated when they, when they don't have to. They could back off of all these other issues and just look to see if they have retail sales. And, and of course, not just a label of retail sales like in the New York case, but retail sales as defined by if it's somebody purchasing the item, whether it's a product or service, if they're not part of the MLM compensation plan, they are a customer. And, and all you have to do is add all those purchases together to get your retail sales um, and then compare them to what the internal consumption is and see if, if the internal consumption is half or less than the retail sales. It, it's really quite simple. Um, and, and again, maybe I've studied it for so long that, you know, it's simple to me, but it's not real simple to someone who doesn't really understand what's going on. I, I guess it's, you know, it's one of those things that you, uh, <laughs> you have to assume that, that, that you just know more and therefore it's not as easy to understand for people that don't know as much, but anyway, uh, so any any comments on that part? You're all good. All right. So um, it it goes on. It says a multi-level compensation system funded primarily by such non-incidental revenues does not depend on continued recruitment of new participants, and therefore does not guarantee financial failure for the majority of participants. I think what they're trying to say there is. If you have retail sales, you don't have to sponsor anybody. You can, but you don't have to, to make money. Um, and then in bold letters, again, it says, in contrast, a multi-level compensation system funded primarily by payments made for the right to participate in the venture is an illegal pyramid scheme. And I do agree with that, by the way. But again, that is cost-cut language, where you're paying thousands of dollars just to join and there was nothing else to do because there was no products available for a year. Um, and, and in reality, what this should be saying is you need to have retail sales because even if it's free to join and you don't have retail sales, then, then if most of your money is coming from internal consumption, then what's happening is those overpriced products are a mixture of a legitimate purchase, you know, the price that you can compare to a uh, comparable product in the market from somebody else. And then on top of that is the inflated price of the product, which is exactly an illegal pyramid. It just has products that are kind of camouflaging it, but it's quite easy to understand um, that the only way you can show that those products have value is customers. Um, and, and, uh, this this whole approach using the cost cut again is just it's just so flawed, and, and I hope the FTC gets over it as far as using it as the basis. Um, if, if that's the only thing that comes out of of the uh, New York case, that's good. That would be a good thing, I think. So uh, uh, another thing in here that talks about again, this goes back to this 2004 advisory letter. And this is um, the opinion of the judge now. I'm not reading from the 2004 letter. But it says, uh, the judge said, the 2004 advisory opinion 
further distinguished an illegal pyramid scheme from a legitimate buyer's club, which, quote-unquote, confers the right to purchase goods and services at a discount, unquote, and is distinguishable from a pyramid scheme in part because the purchase of goods and services is not merely incidentally to the right to participate in a money-making venture, but rather the very reason participants join the program. Again, a very long sentence. Um, but the, the judge really uses the FTC's words against them. <laughs> so not only did the FTC not provide evidence, their positions actually supported the other side. So it, it gets it, it's more than just not being helpful with evidence. It's, hey, your evidence stinks. It actually supports the other side. So it's... It was just an amazing decision uh, to to read through, and and I've read it two or three times now, amazed every time I read it, um, as far as how just incompetent uh, the FTC was. And and speaking of incompetent, I'll read the next sentence here from the judge. It says, um, in concluding that Neora is operating a pyramid scheme, Dr. Bosley, the FTC's witness, and the only witness to testify in support of the FTC's pyramid scheme claim testified that these rewards are unrelated to ultimate user sales, relying on the rewards structure as defined by the compensation plan. So what what she was trying to say there is that every penny that that a distributor uses to buy a product is something that it's only to to get to a higher position in the company, that the product has zero value. Um, and we know that's not true. Um, that, that, I mean, any product, even a lousy product, has some value. You, you can't say that the products are worthless. Um, there might be some out there somewhere. Um, but certainly if you have, you know, 70% of your products being sold to customers, then by definition, they're not worthless. Uh, I always use the definition of how much is something worth? Um, well, the answer is it, it's the amount that someone is willing to pay for it, right? It's, it's not an amount in, as far as in dollars. It's, it, you, have, you have to allow the free market to do its thing. You know, you have to allow customers to make a decision. Is this product worth it? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, a lot of them will buy it. If the answer is no, most of them won't, and and that's really how you determine whether something is worth it is you let the free market dictate if someone is willing to pay for it. Now, I have to say distributors are willing to pay for overpriced products because they're being fed the line. If you work hard enough and long enough, you'll get filthy rich, and so you need to do what I did to get to where I am, you know, as far as what their upline tells them. Because I heard that from my upline, right? I, I know this is what's being said because I was there. I heard it. Um, and, and so there is, as the judge in the uh, Burn Lounge case, I believe it was, said that there's a conjoined opportunity for distributors to buy the products. Um, not only the normal retail sort of incentive that a customer has, but also because the distributor thinks that they're going to make money over time if they work hard enough and long enough, and therefore 
they have this conjoined or combined or uh, the second incentive that a customer does not have. And so that's why you see so many more purchases by distributors versus uh, customers when the products are overpriced. So um, that's, again, something that uh, Stacy Bosley, the professor, their expert, just doesn't get. Um, and, and she, to my knowledge, has never been in an MLM and just is clueless as far as how they operate and the incentives and all of that sort of thing. So I'll let you make any more comments because I know Bosley is one of your favorite people too. Yes, as soon as you mentioned Stacey Bosley, of course I have to jump in. But that argument that the products are worthless is basically one of the linchpins of Robert Fitzpatrick's Ponzi-nomics. It's kind of like MLM company products are worthless. I'm like, no, Robert Fitzpatrick, you know, that's not true. They they may not always be worth what you think they're worth, but to say they are worth less is absolutely fucking retarded. Like, how can you even say anything? How could you be a researcher and say anything like that is worthless and make such a broad sweeping statement? And unfortunately, I believe Stacey Bosley's brain has probably somehow or another been uh, poisoned by Robert Fitzpatrick's stupidity in that statement. Now, I don't think Robert Fitzpatrick is a stupid person. I just think he makes stupid arguments. Um, so having said that, you know, anytime Stacey Bosley is there, uh, you're looking at the um, repetition of stupidity, endless chain, overpriced, worthless products, you know, cult-like behavior. It's the same old broken record. They, they don't have any way of identifying that there might be some good things in any of the things that are going on. And I, I just want to kind of mention products specifically in the health care and the beauty, if you will, um, industry. I'll never forget this story. I was working with Dr. Charles King. Dr. Charles King was the gentleman who was the real professor of marketing in the network marketing industry. He taught at the University of Illinois in Chicago, unlike the fake professor Bill Keep, but that's another story. So uh, one of the people that came to Dr. King was a gentleman named Scott McKnight. Scott McKnight ran a company that manufactured products a lot with aloe. Um, and anybody who's ever studied aloe before knows that the aloe plant has unbelievable products with unbelievable properties that do unbelievable things. Everything, if you ingest it or where they put it on it. But I remember, Scott, I took a plan, I took a tour of the marketing, uh, I'm sorry, of the manufacturing facility. So we had to put on gloves and hats and all that sort of stuff, like hairnets, because we were walking through this thing. And they had this one product, Scott. The bottle was $70.00. And the bottle, and you got to like kind of look at your finger and go, like it was like by one inch this way, by one inch that way, and maybe a half an inch deep. And most of that container was glass. So you could throw this glass out a window and it wasn't going to break. And it was $70 for this bottle of anti-aging stuff with this aloe stuff in there. And people swore by it. They buy it every month. So... Obviously, I looked at that stuff as it was like the most precious material on the planet. And then I went to the manufacturing facility. And I saw the, the people at the manufacturing facility making this specific product. I don't remember the name of it. But 
They were Scott. They were splashing it all over the place. They were they were slopping. It was there was more of this shit on the floor than it was in the vat, and they were splashing it like they were just they were just all over the place. I'm like, oh, and all of us were in horror because we knew how much we were paying for the stuff that was on the bottom of their boots. And it was just like crazy. It was just like if you're washing a dog and everything was like flying all over the place. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then I, you know, just realized that sometimes the cost of manufacturing the product doesn't always have anything to do with the price that people charge. And as you had mentioned, we were, I thought it was pretty high price, but a lot of other people just loved it. They said, no, by comparison, this is cheap, you know, by comparison to other name brand you know, stuff. So price is in the mind of the beholder and value, I think, in it as well. And this was good stuff, but he ran the manufacturing plant, this gentleman, Scott McKnight. And I don't remember the, I don't remember the name of his company, but just he was a really super duper good guy. But I saw how they made this stuff. And in the manufacturing plant, you'll see that the cost of manufacturing is probably, you know, pennies on the dollar relative to what the actual end user charges and for a marketing person or a researcher not to recognize that and say they have no value it's just it's just a it's just poor argument so back to you scott i just figured i would just throw that in there i, I relative to not only mlm but any anything else that you might buy um you know that's it's like you had reference price is a perception sometimes and whatever it is is whatever it is what people are willing to pay for it and uh, in, in some of these instances, it could be crap, and those are the ones that are bad MLM companies. And in some of them, they might be really good products that are manufactured for other people as well, and that adds the real value. So, and they could be sold from one price over here to 10x price over there based on marketing and packaging. So back to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, your story in that manufacturing facility, it almost sounds like you know, think about like a, a gold processing place, you know, and they're dropping gold flakes all over the floor and sweeping them up and throwing them away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why, why, why would you do that? You know, why would you not be more careful if you're, if you're charging that much, you think, like you say, you think you would handle it better. Um, but obviously it was not worth as nearly as much as they were selling it for. Um, but you know, again, I would say, yeah, there's some very questionable things going on there. But if someone is willing to pay that seventy dollars for that little tiny bottle you were talking about, um, and I'm saying somebody, I mean a customer, not a distributor, then it's worth seventy dollars. That's, you know, that's where I come down on it. it it's not, it, it's not anything more complicated than that. You don't have to look any further. Um, you know, it could be a messy manufacturing place that's spilling the stuff all over the place. But if people are willing to spend that money, that I mean, obviously it had some kind of quality, some effect. It worked, whatever they were saying it, you know, it does. It was obviously effective um, or else you wouldn't have very many return customers. So um, it's... It is an interesting world, isn't it? <laughs> and the reason why I mentioned the cosmetics kinds of products is because women are used to spending big dollars on products. And I think that's basically a marketing strategy a lot of the times. 
because I'm telling you, Scott, like when I bought that product and I said, hey, do you want to try it with my wife? And she said, how much was it? And I said, 70 bucks. And she said, oh, that's not bad. You know, she kind of pointed to some stuff that she was buying for way more than that. I'm like, holy crap. Like they got, like they, meaning the people that manufacture this stuff, got you girls hooked. I mean, this is crazy. The idea that you would spend that much money and they say, well, you know, just use a little bit of it. It really works well and it works better than anything else that I've used before. So $70 was a fair price. So for those people that think sometimes, oh, 70 bucks is overpriced products, either you're stone stupid or, you know, you just like to blabber your mouth a little bit or a lot. So the reality is back on that Stacy Bosley thing to say that the price, that the product had no value at all, and to say that, you know, the, the people were involved in whatever they were involved in the way Stacey Bosley does it, and to be arrogant enough not even to realize what a retail sale is based on the data that she was given is just a perfect example of how academics really screw things up. So back to you, Scott. Yeah, it's almost like the price is the indication that something is very high quality, you know, like you say, particularly when it comes to things like um, cosmetics, um, that the price is the packaging in a way, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's really an interesting uh, concept. Um, so let me keep going on Bosley here because this is an interesting part of the decision. And I'll read from the decision here a couple sentences. It says, um, Dr. Bosley testified that the FTC provided her with two legal assumptions for her work in this case both taken from the Ninth Circuit's decision in Burn, in Burn Lounge. Now, I would have to say if I was the FTC's expert, um, I, I would not accept any legal assumptions because I, I'm an expert. I don't need your legal assumptions. <laughs> I, I know what's going on, and I, I don't even want any guidance from outside. In fact, if I get guidance from outside, Am I really an expert, right? An expert's supposed to bring their own expertise into a trial, not be spoon-fed by the FTC. Um, now, it's also interesting that um, this came from Burn Lounge and the Ninth Circuit Court, which, of course, the Ninth Circuit Court has recognized Coscott, um, that precedent. And, um, you know, Burn Lounge was a key case in, in my mind because the way the judge described that conjoined opportunity we talked about before, um, that really was a, uh, a landmark case as far as, as far as my thinking about, you know, MLMs and retail sales and, and, you know, what makes an MLM an illegal pyramid versus a legitimate enterprise. Um, but let me go on with the, the two assumptions that, that they gave her. First, that an ultimate user is limited to a person who would have purchased the product even if not for the business opportunity. Now, to me, that means a customer, okay? Um, and second, that rewards don't have to be completely unrelated to ultimate user sales in order for something to be a pyramid scheme, i.e., that the existence of some sales to ultimate users for consumption does not prevent the plan from being an illegal pyramid scheme. Now, again, these really complex sentences with these double and triple, you know, changes in logic, 
it's just way too confusing. Um, And obviously this is kind of setting up Bosley in a way because what it means is that distributors buy products only because they're going to make money from the business. The, The products have no inherent value at all to a distributor which like like you just mentioned is garbage it's it's just pure silliness that you would have to say that distributors have no incentive to buy the product except for to make money um that the product itself has zero value and and why the FTC gave her that guidance I I don't know um now it goes on and says Dr. Bosley also relied on her third uniform assumption that BPs, now that's brand partners, that's Neor's name for their distributors, uh, that BPs mainly purchase products in pursuit of the business opportunity and thus none of the BPs purchases for personal consumption qualify as sales to an ultimate end user. Um, and again, uh, they're, they're twisting things around to where if they would just simplify and say, look, if you have as many retail sales or more than what's being consumed by distributors, you have a legitimate MLM versus all this twisted logic. Um, and, and this whole discussion of ultimate end user, which I've mentioned before in the, in the uh, Costcott case, which is where this language came from, uh, the word ultimate end user shows up one single time and I think it's 30 or 40 pages of the Costco decision, um, but retail sales shows up like 80 times, and yet all of the focus is on this ultimate end user because there's been a lot of the discussion, you know, where the pro MLM people say distributors are end users because an end user is the last person that purchases and actually uses the product, which I understand. That's a logical approach, but again, we're talking the MLM context here where you need to be able to uh, sort of separate purchases from distributors and, and, and sort of separate those from the purchases by customers so that you can do that equation. You know, are you selling as much as you're using internally? Um, but again, these people don't want to use that simple logic. They like to twist it around and, and confuse things. And, and certainly they confuse the judge because, because the judge goes on and says, um, this is her interpretation of Bosley. It says, put differently, Dr. Bosley and by extension the FTC assumes that purchases by PPs are never ultimate user sales. And, and so that's where they've kind of backed themselves into a corner um, and the judge goes on and says, the court finds that Dr. Bosley's third assumption is not supported by the evidence, and the FTC provides no other evidence to show, <clears throat> excuse me, to show that BP purchases should be uniformly treated not as sales to ultimate users. In addition, the court finds that the FTC improperly discounts the significance of the large volume of sales to PCs, which is preferred customers, 
when evaluating whether the recruitment-based rewards discussed previously are, quote-unquote, unrelated to sale of New York, New York products to ultimate users. Um, and and it, it goes on and says, um, let's see, uh, for these reasons, the court finds that the FTC has not established the second prong of the Costcott test and concludes that Neor is not operating an illegal pyramid scheme. So, so they just totally flopped. I mean, just totally blew it as far as, um, you know, being able to support their, their side of the argument. Uh, it, it's just an incredible thing. Um, and, and I'll go on again with, with the judge's uh, decision. It says, regarding the first issue, that Dr. Bosley's third assumption that BP purchases are not end-user sales is unsupported by the evidence, the court will use the BP first order bonus, that's in capital letters, first order bonus, as an example. For this bonus, if a newly enrolled BP purchases product at enrollment, a percentage of that product purchase amount is paid to both the enrolling BP and the enrolling BP's upline. For Costco purposes, the relevant inquiry is whether this reward is, quote-unquote, unrelated to the sale of the product to an ultimate user, i.e., whether the purchase of the product, and in parentheses um, here, the newly enrolled BP, is an ultimate user. And it says to see another case, um, and then it goes on to say, under Dr. Bosley's assumption, the newly enrolled BP is assumed not to be an ultimate user. Instead, the purchase is assumed to be for the business opportunity and not for personal consumption. But differently, the FTC asked the court to simply assumes that an element of the, co of the cost cut test is met. So again, Bosley and the FTC are trying to say that the only reason that a distributor buys a product is to move up in the in the rank, um, but but the problem with that is when you do have customer sales, it proves that the products do have value, and so there's some percentage. We don't know, you know, it's hard to tell the exact percentage, but there is a part of that purchase that is done for the value of the product when it, when a distributor buys it, and it's not 100% just to, you know make money, you know, to move up in, in the uh, ranks, so to speak. So, again, the judge just shreds the logic, and, and, and I, I agree with the judge. Um, it, it's just silly that the FTC and Bosley tried to put forth this unnecessarily complicated argument, um, which turned out to be wrong anyway. So, anyway, any more comments on that part? Nope. We're good. Um, so I'll go on here and um, let's see. Da, da, da. It says, however, the court finds that Dr. Bosley's assumption is not supported by the evidence. At trial, defendants presented evidence that some BPs enroll without even intending to pursue the business opportunity and are instead savings seekers looking to take advantage of the biggest product discounts that are available only to BPs. In other words, they're purchasing only for the, the discount, um, and there's no intent, you know, to recruit anybody, um, you know, which means they're just in it for the biggest discount. 
and therefore, uh, you know, there's no incentive as far as making money because they're not interested in selling. They're not interested in, in recruiting other people. They just want the biggest discount. Um, and, and so, that, again, that shreds the logic of the FTC and Bosley, and they didn't even see it coming, I think. They, you know, they just didn't understand. <laughs> they, they, they ignore part of the evidence trying to make their point, but the judge has to, has to consider all the evidence, not just the part that the FTC is pushing towards them. And certainly I'm sure that, that Muir pointed this out, right? that some of the some of the people that became distributors did it only for the largest discount that was available. Even the preferred customers did not have as large of a discount. Now I've mentioned before I think that's something that the FTC should push back on. They should say, look, you know, we need to separate these categories. And so you can't give a distributor a larger discount than a preferred customer uh, because now you're mixing things together and you're saying that some of these people joined only for the biggest discount, um, but you really don't know that. Um, I would say, you know, from my personal experience, um, that a lot of, a lot of Amway distributors never tried to recruit. Um, they never tried to sell. Now they didn't last very long, but as you churn people in and out, there's a lot of those people that are always present. And if, if you give them a bigger discount than the preferred customer, then you muddy the waters. You can't really measure, and you can't really tell whether someone tried to sell or tried to recruit. All you can see is that they didn't sell and they didn't recruit. Um, and, and so there's a whole different sort of intent, I guess you could say, that's very difficult to measure unless you separate those things um, and, and then you can tell, um, you know, what someone's incentive is because if they just joined as a uh, preferred customer, obviously they're not even allowed to sell or recruit. And, and so it, it really separates the two categories. Um, and also a preferred customer does not have to sign, which is normally a very onerous contract. Um, I was reading through the, the current Amway contract recently, and it's mind-bogglingly, it's just complex. I mean, it's it, it's written by lawyers, and it's it's worse than you know some some of the stuff I've been reading you, which is you know complicated enough, and the way they just go in circles with their logic. Um, it, it's the same way with the Amway rules. It's it's anything but straightforward, um, and. You know, when you put lawyers in charge, they're going to use lawyerly language. That's that's all I got to say about that. Um, any, any other comments on that part? You're good. I just had to let my dogs outside, so you're good to go. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm sure they enjoy the cool weather there in Florida. I don't. They do. <laughs> well, you're not wearing a fur coat. <laughs> so... Um, so the judge goes on to say defendants provided the LRW, which I take as a name of a company, the, R, the LRW survey, which reported that um, for the admittedly small number of BPs who responded, the top reason for being a BP 
is to get discounts on product, either by getting a discount on products for personal use or to earn free product. You know, a lot of MLMs have uh, incentives to where if you buy a certain amount of product, then you get another one free, you know, kind of like a buy one, get one free type thing, like you see even in non-MLM environments. Um, so, again, it was very small numbers of people that were participating in this this uh, survey. But, again, it's all the judge had to go on, so she had to – and you can tell she's kind of reluctant here, but that's all the evidence she had because the FTC and Bosley and their other expert really didn't provide anything else meaningful uh, to counter that argument. So, you know, she had to run with it. It's, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's just amazing. And, and I always come back in my own mind, Peter, guess who, guess who uh, paid all of Neora's legal fees after this decision? It was the FTC. Yep. That's a good thing. I'd love to know that number. That would be probably a pretty big number. I bet you it was. I'll bet you it was in the millions because, again, like you said, this case had been dragging on for years. You know, they went to a full trial, and there was there was actually a lot of effort post-trial from both sides trying to, you know, give the judge extra information to decide on their side of things. And, and you can believe that, um, you know, those people don't work for free. And so now the FTC didn't really pay the bill because the FTC doesn't have any money. Um, who paid the bill was us, taxpayers. Um, that's who paid the bill for Neora for the, for the FTC's overreach. And, and, you know, for that reason alone, people should be upset and, and uh, start working together. But I, dig, I digress again. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll move on here to another, uh, another uh, part of this. So it talks about, um, let me see, let me go, I have to go back a little bit. It, it kind of switches pages here, so I have to pick up the uh, previous idea. Um, so it goes on and, and talks about, um, you know, the intent and, and whether you're a, a preferred customer and everything. <clears throat> so she goes on and says, the court agrees with this general premise but concludes that it would be error to disregard or discount other relevant evidence as to BP's intent in purchasing Neora product, including their own self-reported motivation for being a BP through the LRW survey, anecdotal reports from Neora employees regarding saving seekers and BP's motivi motivated by product discounts, and motivation that can be inferred from the behavior of PCs, again, preferred customers, converting to BPs. I think we went over that last week. Um, about 30% of the new distributors in a given year came from preferred customers, which, again, that's alarm bells in my head, which I didn't see any pushback from the FTC or uh, Bosley on that point. Um, but I think the judge is exactly right here. You know, you, you can't just totally discount something, especially if you don't have any evidence on the other side. And, and so 
it says this, this evidence potentially lacks the statistical rigor necessary to speak confidently as to the purchase motivation for all or even a majority of NEORBPs, but besides Dr. Bosley's assumption that all BPs purchases are in pursuit of the business opportunity, the FTC provides no tangible evidence to the contrary. The, fail, the failure to provide such evidence is contrary to the FTC's own 2018 guidance. Again, this is where she shoots the FTC in the foot with their own gun, um, which observed that when considering the issue of multi-level marketing participants' internal consumption, the FTC is likely to consider, quote, information bearing on whether purchases were in fact made to satisfy personal demand to consume the product. And again, you're, you're trying to answer a very difficult question when you're asking somebody what was your motivation to buy this product? Um, you're, you're going in, into an area you don't need to go into. If you just say, do you have retail sales? That, that's all you have to do. You don't have to get into all this, uh, you know, psychology and, and trying to, to determine whether the person was telling the truth, that they really liked the product even though it was overpriced. Um, it, it's just silliness and a waste of our taxpayer money, by the way. So um, uh, it, it, it's it's incredible how I don't I don't know, I don't know if Neora put that in front of the judge that 1918 guidance or if the judge did her own research. I would like to know that answer too, because I would like to know the answer you posed. How much did they have to pay Neora? And maybe someday we'll find out. I don't know. <laughs> I think we have a right to know. By the way, we're we're the taxpayers. We paid it. You know, to me, we have a right to know how much they had to pay New York. Um, maybe, maybe I'll ask the FTC that. <laughs> I, I guess if you did like one of those FOIA requests, you know, those Freedom of Information Acts, they would probably have to give it to you within a certain period of time. Could be, you know, the next 15 years, but the reality is they probably would have to give us that information because it's not like it would be sealed or anything. It's a public, um, it's a, a, a publicly available document probably somewhere. Although it's not going to be listed somewhere. You know, the one thing I would just want to underline, Scott, is the idea that Neor was able to take their own survey. <laughs> That's kind of fun. You know, they were able to take their own survey and obviously probably do the survey questions the way they needed to for the survey results that they got. And the FTC was so arrogant that they didn't even bother to call these distributors and find out what their motivation was in buying. And if they would have called and they would have found – you know, something else, oh, I was told I'd be rich and famous. I was told I would be, you know, making a million dollars. I was told I would live forever. They would have had a greater case, but they were too lazy and arrogant. I think it's both a combination of both um, or overconfident um, that they would win this one. And they were beaten by a self-taken survey submitted by the New York crowd, which is really kind of funny. <laughs> it's really kind yeah, of funny. Yeah. You're exactly right. Um, you know, um, and I think the judge even alluded to that, that, you know, this, this survey is kind of questionable because it was done by the company that's trying to protect themselves. But to your point, the FTC didn't do anything to counter it. Um, and, and so the judge only had that to go on. It's incredible. And I think you're right about the FOIA request, too, because, you know, this is not something that they could say, 
well, you know, that's uh, top secret information and, you know, it would be, uh, it, it could be potentially adverse to the safety of the United States and, you know, things of that nature. That's often why government agencies, um, you know, try to resist releasing information is because it's too sensitive. Um, yeah. Uh, to so me, if I can, can I, no can I interrupt? Yeah. That's right. Can I interrupt? I want to do something preemptively just so to make sure that people don't think that we created evidence after the fact. Um, so let's do our own little survey, Scott. Scott, what do you think about the Scott Johnson radio show? Oh, I think it's the best radio show in the world. <laughs> okay. what, what do you think? So the, I, you know, I think you're right about a lot of things, including this survey. So there we go. We got 100% participation. We did it preemptively, meaning we didn't do this afterwards to make up evidence. We already have the evidence, so we can't make up evidence that we already have. So we already conducted our own survey. So, so we win. We win. <laughs> so we. Although I really, I really do think this is a great show. I, I really it is a good we have show. a good time. We have a good time. We have lots of good information. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know both pro and anti MLM people out there that are stupid and don't get it. But you know, we'll keep doing the show. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, so to, to to use a coined phrase, two things can be true at the same time. It could be a crooked survey, but also be true. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I would say here's how we prove how good the show is. I would put this challenge out to anybody except you know who, um, you know, who's a cocaine dealer and I have no respect for, but anybody else in the world is welcome to come on this show and debate us. Now you won't find that true with hardly anyone else, whether they're pro or anti MLM. Um, they will not make that statement. They will not say I will take on anybody who disagrees with me. I'll even take on someone who agrees with me. That's fine. Um, but particularly someone who disagrees because then you'll have a better conversation. I don't know of anybody else that does that. Um, and, and to me, that just shows that we're right uh, because nobody else is willing to take that risk, so to speak, um, to, to lose. Um, yeah, and so, even if it's not a debate, it's more like a conversation. So but right. we will um, – yep. Very interesting. Okay, so I don't. I didn't want to hijack it. I just did want to set our evidence ahead of the ahead of the necessary need for our evidence. Yeah, that's right. That's good to preempt it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so here's another line by the judge where she really slams the FTC. It, it says, "Moreover, the court, which is of course the judge, right? That's how they refer to themselves as the court." So it says, "Moreover, the court notes." that there is evidence the FTC could have provided but did not, which could have supported its position. For example, the court in Vima observed that, quote, evidence that distributors purchase and consume product for the purpose of qualifying for recruitment incentives is evidence of a pyramid scheme, unquote. The FTC speculated that New York BPs could that's in italics, could be making such purchases, but provided no evidence to suggest that this is the case for the majority of BPs so as to support Dr. Bosley's assumption. In other words, they blew it. 
Okay, <laughs> that's that's the short answer. Um, it says instead the the FTC provided no evidence from actual BPs, which you've mentioned before, or participants, and made no effort to show that Dr. Bosley's rigid theoretical opinions regarding BP purchasing motivations based on compensation plan are borne out in reality. Um, I love that word reality because it reminds me of the uh, Drew Omar case where the judge, um, when rejecting the five by five by five, you know, Robert Fitzpatrick and almost any other MLM or um, their diatribe, when he said, we don't live in a fantasy land, um, you know, noting that there's no five by five by five here. All it is is a, is a math equation. Um, it, it has no bearing on reality. And this judge correctly, in my opinion, said the same thing. You, you guys, you have nothing. You, you're, you know, you're bringing this company to, to trial. You're making them spend millions of dollars. You're damaging their reputation, and you have nothing. And I think the judge was pretty disgusted, and, and rightly so, because this is some of the language that she used throughout this this uh, decision, really criticizing the FTC, really saying, "Hey, you guys are screwing up here. You're you're just really." You know, what are you doing? <laughs> kind of a thing. It, it's it's really amazing. Um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, that's the end of that page. Um, let's see what I have next. So this one's a little bit more involved. Um, let's just stop here, Peter. Let me go back like I did last week and review this particular comment because it's in a footnote and it refers to the paragraph above. Do you want to do a couple of uh, behind MLM stories? Sure, if you want to. With our time left about, here? Uh, yeah, we've we got about, about five minutes. minutes. Yeah. So unless there was something you, you wanted to talk about also, was nope, there something that good. was burning in your mind? Okay. So nope, I'm at um, behindmlm.com, and um, there's some interesting stories here. Uh, a couple of them are um, really interesting because they came at about the same time frame within a day or two. And it's, it's various people. I'm not going to go into the stories in detail, but I'll read the headlines. There's a couple here from January 20th. Um, ICOM texts Marco, not that Marco, Marco Ochoa sends the five years in prison. Uh, next headline is Auto Trade Gold's Wayu Kenzo sentenced to 10 years in prison. So there are, there are some victories here. Um, and, and there's many other stories that we don't talk about because there's just too many to cover. But those are two of them that I think should be mentioned because it's just good to see that, you know, some of these people are being caught. Now, here's one that's a little bit sad, but probably a good thing overall. Um, the headline is from January 19th, uh, 2024. Uh, Ryan Ginster appears to have killed himself in prison. So this is a guy that um, I think he's a serial, you know, scam artist, only 36 years old. Um and, you know, he was in prison. I, I can't remember for how long. I don't think he had a real long time. No, it was only 27 months. That's why yeah, it, says he months, committed, yeah. it says he committed suicide. But, you know, I don't – that's that's a stretch, you know, when you're, when you're in jail for 27 months max and you kill yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little questionable about that. There's probably a little bit more to that story. 
Yeah, it sounds a little bit like, uh, what's his name, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein. <laughs> yeah, Epstein. John McCarthy. You know, yeah, but, you know, you know, prison is not a pleasant place, and everyone's different. And he may have psychologically broke in there, um, you know, because there are people that, you know, when you're in prison, you get picked on, and, and there's all kinds of, you know, rapes and, uh, you know, people getting beat up and, you know, stabbed and all kinds of different things. There's all kinds of pressures, and depending on your psychological makeup, you know, if you go into overload and you say this isn't worth it, then and, um, and there was also going to be some more hearings on um, some some money he was supposed to be um, paying back. So maybe he just lost hope completely based on a number of different things, and you know, just decided this is the way out. Um, you know, very much like I think John Peterson with Herbalife back in what was it 2013 time frame. You know, he was a very, very high-level uh, Herbalife distributor. Who, when the when the uh, company said, "Hey, no more, no more making money on any kind of tools, guys. We're going to phase this out." And at, at the end of that six-month period, he put a bull in his brain. So, um, you know, it's one of those things. You know, we don't know what people are thinking and 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 how they're internally structured. Um, and, and some of them break in that manner. Um, yeah. So it, it is unfortunate, but, you know, if, if you don't do the crime, you won't do the time, um, and, and the time is not pleasant. So think about those things before you scam people. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, now, here's an interesting story, too. Uh, January 18th, um, the headline is, I don't know how you say this, Barnaji Review, Silver and Citizen Nut Job Gifting Scheme. So this is a blatant gifting scheme, but what these guys do was pretty clever because what they did was they constructed a number of arguments where they explained that what they're doing as an illegal gifting scheme is actually good. <laughs> and they've got the American flag and freedom of uh, contract and, and different, um, you know, they, they say explicitly there's no expectation of return even though in other parts they show you how to make money. <laughs> so it, it, it's just, you know, really trying to cover up their tracks, except in a very obvious manner. Um, they talk about a licensing agreement and uh, freedom of private contract, that, you know, the government shouldn't step in the middle of a private contract, um, you know, trying to use um, these kinds of, you know, constitutional and bill of rights type of language. Um, they talk about transparency and automation, uh, community-centric model, you know, like, hey, we're all in this together, kumbaya. Uh, here's, one, here's my favorite, I think. They call it adaptive compliance. In other words, if the government says you're doing things illegally, oh, we'll just change it. <laughs> so, so, so they have an automatic out, right? No matter what happens, we're compliant because we're going to adapt. <laughs> so, in um, case educational engagement, uh, repetitive cycle. So there's all these things where they, again, try to make it sound like um, this is really okay. It, it's obviously a gifting scheme. It's illegal, but um, <laughs> we're okay because we have all these, you know, motherhood and apple pie uh, arguments. <laughs> so I don't know if you had a chance to look at that at all, but that no, one kind of tickled me. I didn't see that one yet. Yeah. It reminds me of the uh, – eight-figure dream lifestyle thing. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that one's come back around as well. That one's come back around somewhere down in behind MLM. You'll see some more articles about that. It is. There's a January 17th, uh, 2024 article. It says, fourth eight-figure dream lifestyle arrest, question mark. Um, so apparently there was three people that were arrested, and I was the fourth one. And I, I really dislike how um, the website abbreviates the uh, eight-figure dream lifestyle. They, they make it AFDL, which really, you know, it really just squanders the beauty of that name. You know, the, I just thought that that was such a beautifully uh, constructed name of the MLM with flashing red lights to say, hey, FTC, this is a major scam. Yeah. <laughs> Eight-figure dream lifestyle. Nothing like oh, an income claim. Here's, here's a good one. You know, all these different lawsuits that Trump has been under. Um, this is another January 17, 2024. Uh, ACN Trump RICO class action dismissed. So um, in that case, this is a class action lawsuit where Trump was promoting ACN, and they said that, uh, you know, he was misleading them, and they filed this class action lawsuit. And like I mentioned earlier, it's really hard to – to get a class action lawsuit approved because there's a number of wickets you have to get through. And I don't recall which one they didn't get through with this one. I think it was maybe the common experience, um, but it's, it's basically gone. Now there's three defendants, or I should say three plaintiffs in different States that lost maybe a couple thousand dollars each, and they could still go after Trump as individuals, but come on, that's a couple hours of a good lawyer's time. And, and so it's just not worth going to court. I, I doubt that any of these people are going to go to court over this as individuals. Uh, they might. I mean, you might have a George Soros type person funding it just to make Trump look bad. But um, again, I, I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. And that looks to be like the end of this whole uh, case that's been going on for, I think, at least three or four years. And now it's basically dead. Um, uh, let's see if we have next page. See if we have any other. There was another couple in here that I thought were interesting. And one was a uh, one coin. Um, January 15, 2024, Austrian Supreme Court certifies Lioness contracts illegal. We've talked about that company before. Oh, here's the one coin. Um, headline from January 15, 2024, uh, Carrie Walrus tells one coin victims to quote unquote kiss my ass. So, <laughs> so this guy was one of these guys that made tons of money from one coin, which is still around. There's been several people, you know, prosecuted and even, um, you know, e even, uh, 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 what do you call it? Um, you know, the government won. They, 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 uh, they were successfully prosecuted. They were convicted. They were convicted. Um, and, and yet this guy it has a picture of him. I don't know if this is the context of that headline, but there's this guy that's this fellow apparently, you know, given the middle finger in a photograph. <laughs> so it's, a, it's the little caption says, so I took the leadership role and I fucking showed them all. <laughs> that's, that's his uh, attitude. It's like, Hey, I made money. So screw you. Um, I'll stop on that one. That's, that's a good one to end on. Um, That's great. Um, it, he made a ton of money, and he doesn't care. You know, he doesn't care. It was a total scam. He made his money, so screw you. 
I'll, I'll stop there, Peter, and, and let you close out the show. There you go. Well, let's um, give your website away for those people who want to see this as well as previous stuff. And if you go back to buildingfortunesradio.com forward slash Scott Johnson, you'll be able to hear this again on the Building Fortunes radio platform. But, Scott, why don't you give up your website, and then we'll call it a show. Fantastic. Yeah. So um, if you go to my Facebook page, which is um, facebook.com slash Scott Text Johnson, S-C-O-T-T-T-E-X-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, that's all one word. You'll see three websites. You'll see the link to this radio show that Peter just mentioned. Uh, you'll see my YouTube, uh, my email, my telephone number. Um, it's all right there. You know, feel free to contact me in any way you would desire. Um, and again, I'll make an open offer to anyone that you know thinks that they have a, a different take, and and I'm willing to be open-minded to, to additional facts. I'm not closed-minded, but I'm pretty confident that um, if we disagree. I'm right and you're wrong, but you're welcome to come <laughs> on here and debate. Uh, David, I'll let, let you uh, do the final well, closeout, and we'll see you next week. Well done. Well, it'll be warmer next week. We'll catch everybody next time. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Building Fortunes Radio on buildingfortunesradio.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time for the designated Building Fortunes Radio segment with Peter Mingle. Be sure to check out the buildingfortunesradio.com website for our featured segments. It's been our privilege to have you listen in. At Building Fortunes Radio, we wish you the success you deserve and are willing to work for. So spread the word, tell a friend, join our newsletter, and go make a difference in your world.